In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of the faithful. Enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, teach us by the same Holy Spirit to know and to relish what is right and to rejoice always in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, good evening, everyone. Sadly, it's my turn. So um, tonight I want to talk to you uh, about something. But first, I want to tell you a story. Uh, a man goes to see a psychologist, and he says to him, Doc, you've got to help me. He says, half of the time I wake up in the morning, and I think I'm a teepee. And the, and the other half of the time I wake up in the morning, and I think I'm a yurt. I mean, teepee, yurt, teepee, yurt. I'm going crazy, Doc. What's my problem? And the doctor looks at him and says, well, your problem is you're too tense. Okay, that, much better reaction than I got at All Saints last week. Um, you guys have probably come to know at this point that I, I love wordplay like that. You know, Father Don groans all the time when I do that, but that's his problem, not mine. And, you know, I, I, I was kind of reflecting on that because I think there's a reason that people like me really get into puns and wordplay and, and stuff like that. I also, I like crossword puzzles and stuff like that because I really love words. And that's not to say that, you know, people who don't like puns don't like words, but I mean, we really, those of us who do, we really love words. We, we love to drill into the meaning of words. And we take words very seriously. We take sounds of words very seriously. And so um, we get tremendous satisfaction when we can play words around like that. And when we can have when we have some fun because we can use words that sound the same but have completely different meanings, like tense and tense. So, um, and I think one of the things that, that, you know, okay, call me grumpy old man, uh, and I wouldn't argue with you, but one of the things that I've noticed, and it comes really from, um, from social media, but also from spending three years in a high school, is that we've gotten really lazy with language uh, during the course of my lifetime. We've gotten a lot more lazy with language, and people will say to me, well, you know, I mean, language evolves, and I, and I get that. But, you know, it, we, we're also losing a lot of the nuance in our language, and so we have a tendency to use words interchangeably that are not necessarily interchangeable words. They're very similar. They have similar meanings, but not exactly the same meaning. And so we're losing a lot of, of the beauty of the language because we're, we're losing a lot of the nuance. And one of the examples that I would use are the, are the words kind and nice. Now, people have a tendency to use those words interchangeably. When I first got to the high school, one of our um, guidance counselors would give this big uh, talk to the incoming freshmen, and he would always talk about, you know, he, he would tell the kids, one of the rules you should live by is be nice. And when he was done with that talk, I took him aside. He's now a seminarian for our diocese. I took him aside and I said, Ricky, can, can I ask you to make one small change to that talk? Just one word. And he said, what? And I said, I want you to throw out nice, and I want you to put in kind. 
And he said, well, what's the difference? And I said, well, nice is when you want to avoid any kind of confrontation, any kind of conflict, any kind of uh, uh, discomfort in the person to whom you're speaking to the point that you will say things that aren't necessarily true to avoid conflict. I said, kind is where you always have the other person's best interest at heart, but you're willing to say the truth, even when that truth is difficult. And so I think that's why I wanted to give this talk today, because I want to talk about two other words that we use interchangeably, uh, but I don't think are really interchangeable. And those two words, if you saw the Instagram post, those two words are guilt and shame. We talk a lot about guilt and shame. In fact, my brothers and sisters love to talk about Catholic guilt all the time as their excuse for not practicing their Catholic faith. And I just want to throttle them, at which point I suffer from Catholic guilt for wanting to kill my siblings. Um, but you don't know them. If you did, you might agree with me. But guilt and shame, they are very different, at least I think they are. And I want to explain to you why I think you should think they are. And why I think one of them is a very good thing, and I think one of them is not a good thing. But in order for me to do that, first, we need to talk for a few minutes about the human person. Because in order to understand this nuance, in order to understand this difference, there's something that I want you to understand if you don't already, and if this is a repeat, I apologize, but something I want you to understand about the human person. Uh, I had a seminary professor who said that the best way to describe something is to use as few words as possible that make something distinct and unique as few words as possible. And he said he can describe a human person in two words, two words that make a human person distinct. And those two words are rational animal. Only human beings are rational animals. All the other animals are animals, but they're irrational. And so they have to be described differently, but we are rational. Because, like all the animals, we have a will, and we have appetites. But unlike all the animals, we also have an intellect. And people will say to me, well, Father, you haven't met my cat, or you haven't seen my dog. Or, you know, I was watching a National Geographic special, and an elephant painted a portrait. Or the great apes, you know, chimpanzees are practically human beings. And my answer is, well, I've yet to see a chimpanzee produce a three-bedroom ranch house with indoor plumbing. They may be clever, and um, they may have larger brains and more active brains, but they're not rational. And they don't build on what they've learned from their, their previous generation and grow. Only human beings do that. We're the only ones who take what we've learned and we add to it, which is how we can be here today. And I can be using this wireless microphone that 100 years ago didn't exist. And so human beings are different because we have an intellect. So we have those three faculties, those three faculties of the human, 
human person are our intellect, our will, and our appetites. And I can describe all three of those with three words. My appetites are what I want. My will is what I do. And my intellect is what I know. Want, do, know. And so as human beings, we're supposed to analyze the world with our intellect. Our appetites, which you know, include our sensual appetites and also include our emotions, these are all things that receive input and respond to them. If I haven't eaten for a while, I feel hunger. You know, if I haven't had anything to drink for a while, I feel thirst. If some bonehead in a Tesla cuts me off on 95, I feel anger. These are all natural responses to external stimuli. So as a result, most people do not realize this. I know this because I hear it next door all the time. Most people don't realize that just being angry is not a sin. Being angry is no more of a sin than being hungry or being sad. We cannot sin in our appetites. Sin is in our will. Sin is in what we do, right? So the guy in the Tesla cuts me off, and I gun my truck, and I run him off the road. Now there's where the sin is. Being angry that he cut me off is not the problem. It's what I do. That's where my sin occurs. And so how is a human being supposed to deal with all of this? Well, the way we were designed, the way we were originally supposed to be, is that our appetites inform our intellect, and our intellect analyzes and directs our will. So my appetite tells me hungry. I'm hungry. And my intellect says it's Lent and I'm fasting. So I'm going to be hungry. Or my intellect says, it's Easter, and my fast is over, and so I'm going to eat. But you notice in both cases, what happens is my intellect makes the decision based on its knowledge. And then my intellect directs my will. No food, it's Lent. Cake and ice cream, it's Easter. And when I do that, I'm properly ordered. I'm doing everything as I'm supposed to be doing it. But unfortunately, we're not really like that, are we? Often, we just go ahead and act. <laughs> I'm hungry, I eat. Ooh, it's Friday in Lent. I shouldn't have just had that cheeseburger. My wife is home, and this attractive woman is here. I act. Ooh, I shouldn't have done that. I've cheated on my wife. We allow our appetites to drive what we do. That's part of our brokenness. That's part of our sinfulness. Our appetites short-circuit our intellect and take control of our will. You know, it's interesting because we talk about people who really manage to control themselves well. The person who is on a diet and never breaks his diet, and we say, he's got incredible willpower. 
Well, my answer is no, he's got incredible intellect power because his intellect is controlling his will. So what does any of this have to do with guilt and with shame? Well, it has to do with where those two um, feelings, where those two understandings reside within us. When I feel guilt, it is because I know that I have done something I should not do. When I feel guilt, I have an understanding of my mistake. I understand the wrongness of my action. And so when I feel guilt, my intellect is now open to make a resolution. How am I going to change this? How am I going to stop this? How am I going to be better next time? What am I going to do to prevent myself from falling to this temptation again? Am I going to, you know, always wear my wedding ring prominently? And whenever I meet someone, the first thing I'm going to say is I'm married so that people know that I'm not interested in being unfaithful to my spouse. Am I going to clear all of the tempting food out of my refrigerator and out of my cabinets because I know I'm on a diet and I don't want to eat things that are not good for me? Am I going to get rid of all of the alcohol because I know I've developed an alcohol problem? Am I going to put protections on my phone, my computer, and my tablet because I know I have a problem with pornography? How am I going to act because of the guilt I experience because of the wrongness of what I have done? And so guilt is healthy because guilt opens us up to transformation. Through guilt, we understand what we have done wrong, and we can make a resolution to be better. Does it mean I'm going to change right away? No. Does it mean that I'm not going to keep falling? No. But at least I understand, and at least I'm now open to making change. And that's why whenever someone looks at me and says, you know, I'm not Catholic because of Catholic guilt, my answer is no, you're not Catholic because you suffer from something entirely different. You don't suffer from guilt. You suffer from shame. Because if guilt is about my knowledge of what I've done wrong, shame is about my feeling about myself because I am a sinner. And so shame makes me think that I am unworthy. I'm unworthy of God's love. I am unworthy of the love of the people around me. I am unworthy of the gift of salvation. I am unworthy, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. And so it attacked my identity. Guilt attacks my actions. Shame attacks me. And when I allow myself to live in shame, I become so discouraged because I'm never going to be any better. And nobody's ever going to love me and I'm going to die homeless and penniless, or whatever it may be. Shame is, is a product of the devil that is thrown into our hearts to prevent us from reforming. Because if we're living in shame, we don't believe we can change. 
We get lost in this downward spiral of self-recrimination and of self-doubt. And ultimately, it leads us to self-hatred. Because we have a skewed perception of who we are. And we can no longer believe that God can love us. And so that's why I, I can't discourage people strongly enough to avoid feeling shame. It's not healthy. Shame is actually mentioned in Scripture at the end of Genesis chapter 2. The man and the woman were naked and felt no shame because they were properly ordered at that moment. And they were living their lives the way they were supposed to. And they had no reason to be afraid of one another. They had no reason to be distrustful of one another because neither one of them wanted to do anything that was contrary to what they knew was right. Their appetites, their wants, and their intellect, what they knew, were in line. After the fruit, what do they do? They sew together fig leaves. And one of my favorite lines from Genesis chapter 20, or chapter 3 is, Then the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the afternoon, and he called out to the man and said, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I knew I was naked, so I hid myself. He hid himself because he was ashamed, because he was now living in shame. He no longer understood that God still loved him, that God still wanted a relationship with him. And so he did what we all do when we start feeling that shame. He hid from the only person in the universe from whom it is technically impossible to hide. You cannot hide from God. And yet he tried to hide. And we do too. I know because I see it or hear it next door. When people will come to me and they will say, you know, I've committed this and, and it could be a very serious sin. And I haven't been to Mass since. Because I'm afraid of what God is going to think of me if I walk into Mass. Even my brother once said, he, when I invited him to my ordination to the diaconate, he looked at me and said, well, I don't know if you're going to want me to be there because, you know, lightning might strike. And I looked at him and I said, well, that's ridiculous. God would never be upset with you for coming to his house to be with him. In Matthew's Gospel, the account of Peter's denial says that Peter was with Christ, and Christ said, you're all going to be scattered. And Peter said, not me, 
Lord, if everyone else runs away, oh, Peter, if everyone runs away, I will never abandon you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows three times, you will deny that you even know me. And this he does. I do not know the man. And when he denies Christ for the third time, Matthew tells us that Jesus looked at Peter and Peter ran from the city and wept bitterly. Why? Because he felt guilty for what he had done. He had made a commitment to the Lord. And he failed on that commitment. He had made a promise and he reneged on it. He had loved this man for three years and he abandoned him in his time of need. And then the moment he does that, he looks at that very man and he sees a look on Christ's face that strikes him to his very core. And it wasn't anger or recrimination. It wasn't even, see, I told you so. It was like, Peter, I love you. And I know you. And I knew you were going to do this. But I just love you. And when Peter felt that guilt, he was able to go out and weep tears of guilt and prepare himself for that moment on the shore, when Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's able to say, Master, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. Now, there was another disciple that night who was just as beloved by Christ as Peter. When he realized what he had done, he went back to the chief priests. He tried to give them back those 30 pieces of silver. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And their response to him is, what is that to us? Deal with it yourself. And so what did Judas do? He went and hanged himself. Because Judas didn't feel guilty about what he had done. He felt shame for what he had done. And he no longer believed that he was worthy of God's love. He didn't know that God had not turned his back on him. He didn't know that Jesus was just as ready to look at him and say, Judas, do you love me? And as impetuous as Peter sometimes is, I think Judas, had he felt true guilt for what he did and avoided the shame as Peter avoided the shame, if he had felt guilt and had been willing to stand before Christ and the apostles and say what I did was wrong, I think he'd probably be one of the most popular saints in the whole communion of saints. Because how many of us cannot relate to someone who has done something that boneheaded out of ignorance, 
or out of greed or out of anger. I could keep going, pride, lust, gluttony. But because Judas allowed himself to believe that it was about him, he despaired. Peter knew it was about what he had done. And so he changed. I think that's why words matter. And I think that we shouldn't use words like guilt and shame interchangeably because they really are different. And I hope if anyone ever again says to you, well, you know, all that Catholic guilt, your response is that Catholic guilt is a good thing because it helps us change. It makes our sin available to our intellect so that our brains, the rational part of us, which divides us from every other creature on earth, can make a resolution to change. And that my sin becomes about what I have done and it is not about who I am. You are not your sins. You are not the sum total of your sins. Your sins, your brokenness, your failures do not define you. The devil wants you to think they do. Shame wants you to think they do. God wants you to know they don't. He wants you to feel guilt so that you can change and be better. Because that's all he wants for you. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. We can't have an abundant life if we believe we are our sins and our weaknesses and our failures. We can only have an abundant life when we know that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God and that we can do something about our sin because we can recognize its wrongness and we can resolve to change. But we can only do that when we reject shame and embrace guilt.